The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians 1, 3-6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Lily. What shapes how you view life? What shapes, what are the influences that shape your outlook? I know that's, that's a tough question to answer, right? There, there's so many different influences that shape how we view life, but there are, there are some things that I, I'm sure are certain factors in all of our lives, things that influence all of us. For instance, when you were born shapes your outlook in some ways. So if you were born 300 years ago, or born 30 years ago, you're going to view different thing, things differently. Like your, your employment, you're born 300 years ago, you're probably going to do what your dad did. You're going to work the farm. You're born 30 years ago. You have all these choices. It, it, it would determine how you viewed success and your family and probably who you'd marry and even what you considered health. All of that would be shaped by when you were born. Where you were born also shapes how you view life. So over the last year, I've enjoyed getting to know Steve and and we've, we've talked about ways that growing up in different countries shapes how we view life. So I grew up in the United States. Steve, when he was a kid, grew up in India. And so we've just talked about that, and it's been, it's been fun to see the differences. One of the things Steve shared with me one time was that in India, pastors are treated with the, an incredible amount of respect that almost bordered on reverence. And we were talking about this one time, and, and uh, it was a few weeks, a few months after that conversation, we were eating lunch together, and Adam got up and threw his trash away, and he came back and he reached down to take Steve's trash. And it was funny because I knew, I knew what Steve was thinking from our conversations, and I could almost see him struggling to let go of his trash to let Pastor Adam throw his trash away. So, like, culturally, because of where he grew up, it felt strange for Steve to allow Adam to dispose of his garbage. There's all these factors that influence our view of the world, right? The culture we live in affects our outlook. The family we're raised in, even our DNA, these all affect what we prioritize. They affect our understanding of what it means to be healthy, how we think we should raise our children, what it means to be successful, and on and on, right? There are a million different things that shape how we view life. But for the Christian, we're told that there's one thing that should shape how we understand ourselves, our purposes in the world we live in. And that's the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus shapes how we view everything. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, what he did was he took an upside-down world and he, and he started to turn it right side up. He, he reshaped reality, and so those of us who have participated in his death and resurrection, our reality is being reshaped. We no longer look at the world through the prism of, of family and culture and geography. The cross of Jesus shapes our view of the world and everything in it. And this is the overarching theme of this letter, really of both of Paul's letters here to this church in Corinth. 
This is what we're going to keep coming back to is this theme that the cross of Jesus shapes our view of the world and everything in it. You see, this, this church and these believers in this church, they, they continue to look at their life and they continue to evaluate it using the same grid as the culture around them. They judged success and they judged failure the very same way they did before they became Christians. They made decisions and they built relationships based on their previous priorities. They didn't yet understand the monumental shift in everything that happened when Jesus died and rose from the dead. You see, the cross was supposed to shape how they understood life and it wasn't. And so this is what I want you to consider this morning as we begin studying this book together. Is your view of life shaped primarily by the cross of Jesus Christ? Do you measure success the same way as everyone around you does? Or has the cross changed what you prioritize? How has the death of Jesus for your sin affected how you view certain issues, your outlook on social and cultural and moral issues? So here's what the Apostle Paul will do in this letter. He's going to carefully show these Christians where their life is not being shaped by the cross, and then he's going to help them start to see these issues through the cross and how the cross changes how they view the circumstances in their life. And so that's what we're going to do together as we work through these 13 chapters the next few months. So before he gets in the heart of the letter, Paul Paul writes a brief greeting. This was common in letters, still common today. And in this greeting, he introduced himself and his audience. So look at verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. And Timothy, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins by identifying himself as an apostle. And the point of that is to say this message is not coming from me. It's really coming from God through me. Now this identification is going to become very important later in the letter as Paul begins to challenge the false teaching that, like a snake, has slithered into the church. So he, he's writing this group, this, this apostolic message to a group of people that has a special identity. Notice he says they are, in verse 1, the church that belongs to God. I mean, what a special privilege. And what an important reminder. They are part of God's church. Brothers and sisters, we too are part of God's church. We're part of God's assembly. We're part of God's special people. It's his church, not ours. Therefore, God is the one who gives the orders. God is the one who makes the decisions. We're responsible to listen to him and obey. Never forget, Christian, you belong to the church. The church doesn't belong to you. I think this is important for us in this next season of our church really as we anticipate God giving us a a building that we'll say of our own. In one sense, that's true. In another sense, it's not. We belong to the church, but the church does not belong to us. This is your church, and it's my church in the sense that we belong to it. But it has one owner, and he purchased it with his blood. So he calls this church saints. Now, this is shocking if we think of saints like like some people do, as sort of the subset of super spiritual Christians, because you read through the letters to Corinth and you're like, they don't seem all that spiritual. If you think of saints as a certain group of Christians that have achieved a special status, but, but that's not how the Bible uses it. The Bible uses the word saints to refer to all Christians because 
All Christians have been called out of the world to follow Jesus. We have all been set apart as his people. He is making us saintly. He's making us holy, all of us. So this church of saints has received, verse 2, grace and peace through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even this letter itself is some of his grace to them. So they haven't earned credit or status through their own efforts. They've received the benefits of the gospel through faith in Jesus Christ. And so since they are a group of grace and peace receiving saints, the neon glow of their gatherings should radiate with grace and peace to others. No matter where a church assembles, the overwhelming impression should be one of grace and peace. So a church may meet in a school, but it's not there to educate people. A church may meet in a strip mall, but it's not selling anything. A church may meet in a movie theater, but it doesn't exist to entertain. A church is a grace and peace-filled people who extend grace and peace to people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So having now quickly established his credentials, he's an apostle. He's reminded them that their primary identity is as Christians. He now moves very quickly into the first topic of this letter, and that's affliction. And he's going to show them how the cross teaches Christians that affliction has a purpose. If we, if we view affliction through the natural lens of culture, we'll only see negatives. It's just going to seem pointless. But if the cross shapes our view of affliction, then we will see how God uses it for our good. So in these verses, we discover four ways affliction serves us as Christians. Here's the first. Through affliction, we experience the comfort of God. We experience the comfort of God. So affliction allows us to learn something about God that we would not otherwise know. We learn that God's essential character is merciful and comforting. If someone asks you to describe your dad, I think most of us would probably think back upon some key moments in our past, some key moments from childhood, moments that stand out, moments that, that seem especially significant, and then based upon those moments, we would say, you know, my dad, he knew how to make me laugh. Or my dad, had, he has a really bad temper. Or, or my dad, he, he always takes care of us. See, see, what affliction teaches Christians is that when life hurts and the pressure is unbearable, our dad is merciful and comforting. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our afflictions so we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also Christ, through Christ our comfort overflows. Now I look around this room and I see a lot of fathers and I know I think almost all of the fathers sitting here. And knowing you, I, I'm confident that each one, as I look around, you, you care for your children. So I know this about you, that when your children hurt, you hurt too. But I know this about you too, that none of the fathers sitting here, including the one standing up here, are as good a father as God is. And so that means none of us care for suffering children as deeply as God does for us when we suffer. Now the word comfort is used five times in these three verses, ten times in this paragraph. It's a, it's a good translation, but only because we don't have a better English word. So the word comfort here is actually much bigger than 
than our understanding of comfort or how we use it. Because we, we tend to think of comfort narrowly. Comfort is the mom who goes up to her son after he loses the championship game and hugs him and says, it's, it's okay, sweetie. It's, it's going to be all right. And, and that's certainly an aspect of comfort. But this word also means to strengthen and encourage. So it's also the football coach at halftime who doesn't give anyone a hug. Right? He grabs their shoulders and shakes them. It's like, we can do this. Don't give up. We're going to win in the end. One author described this word comfort like this. He said the whole idea of the word is that one person is being with another. Speaking words which change their mood and situation, giving them courage, new hope, new direction, new insights which will alter the way they face the next moment, the next day, the rest of their life. So when we are afflicted, we experience the near presence of God that changes how we view and understand both our circumstances and his purposes in it. And that is true, notice, no matter what kind of affliction it is. Verse 4 says he comforts us in all our affliction. Now, affliction, as Paul used it throughout this letter, is primarily referring to suffering because of the gospel, but he doesn't limit it to that type of affliction. It's referring to any pressure that feels like it might crush us. So there is no type of affliction, there is no type of pressure that prohibits God from comforting his children. You realize this includes affliction or pressure that comes from our poor decisions? Like sometimes we think that God will only help us if we deserve it, if we, if we acted perfectly. So maybe if it's sort of an outward pressure. It wasn't my fault. But if we failed in any way, if any of this pressure is there because of our mistakes, then we're on our own. We're, we have to fix it. Like we made our bed. This is a dad saying which no one understands. We made our bed, so we have to lie in it. But this verse 3 says God is the father of comfort, notice, and mercy. So all of his comfort flows from his mercy, and his mercy is always undeserved. So God doesn't comfort us because we deserve it. God comforts us because he is merciful. His comfort is not contingent on your level of goodness. I like how one person wrote it. They said, Jesus is positively drawn toward you when you are most sure he doesn't want to be. At your point of deepest shame and regret, that's where Christ loves you the most. So even when the pressure we feel is because of our stupid, regretful decisions, our Father extends his mercy and comfort to us through Christ. Have you made some choices recently that have brought pressure? Maybe it's the weight of shame and the weight of regret that's pressing down on you. Maybe it's the fear of failure. Do you feel too dirty or, or too foolish to come to God? It says here he comforts us in all our affliction. And the first taste of this comfort is when we become a Christian. Right? We, we turn from our sin. We turn from our failure to obey God. We also turn from our efforts to try to make make God respond a certain way, our good deeds, and then we call on Jesus to save us. And, and he, he forgives us of our sin. As we read earlier together, he cleanses us and he removes our shame. And this is the first taste of his comfort. 
So friend, if you have never called on Jesus to save you, you can this morning, and you can understand for the first time why we call God the Father of comfort and mercy. But brothers and sisters, we need this promise of comfort because we will suffer and we will be afflicted. Verse 5 says, the sufferings of Christ overflow to us. Affliction is a part of the Christian experience. We share in Christ's suffering, right? And that was significant, tremendous suffering. Now, I don't know about you, when I read that verse, it sounds terrible. Like, well, I thought I was signing up for Jesus to bear my suffering. He suffered for me. Why does it say I will suffer for him? And this is why, because we are that connected to him. That he united himself to us in such a way, to such a degree, that, that he would take our place on the cross and we are forever united with him. So we share in his suffering and we share in his comfort. Verse 5, our connection with Christ is that close. Our union with Christ is that concrete. In fact, it's so close that when the Apostle Paul is persecuting Christians before his conversion, Jesus from heaven says to him, why are you persecuting me? See, this is what it's telling us, that Jesus is with us in our suffering. That you may be suffering right now and you feel alone, but if you are a Christian, you are not alone. You can never be alone. But we will suffer. And we should prepare ourselves for affliction. We're naive, Christian, if we think we're going to escape this life without difficulty. We boarded a ship that sails into a storm. Right? This is the path of the cross. The cross prepares us for suffering. I mean, we say this, we follow a crucified Savior. Where do we think that will lead? See, all, all around us are people that their life is devoted primarily to avoiding discomfort. And we need to be different in this way. Because the cross teaches us that suffering leads to glory, which means our primary goal in life cannot be avoiding pain. Our primary goal in life is to follow Jesus. So the first way that affliction serves us is by helping us experience the comfort of God. Here's the second way. Through affliction, we comfort others who are suffering. Through affliction, we comfort others who are suffering. So two weeks before Christmas, we got a call from Carrie's brother. His daughter, one of his daughters, has just been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So when we heard the news, we called them and we offered to have Carrie fly out there for a few days to help them. I remember speaking to my brother-in-law on the phone and just saying, you know, Carrie will come. She's an expert in this because nine years earlier, two of our sons had been diagnosed with the, the same thing. And so she was able to go out there and she was able to help them. She was able to say to them, like, this is okay. Don't worry here. Here's what you do, need to do. Here's, here's how you'll handle that. Because of her experience in suffering, it helped her help them into their time of need. So this is what Paul said in verse 4, right? We, we suffer in order to comfort others. Now look at verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. 
And our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the suffering, so you will share also in the comfort. I mean, we know the answer to this, right? How do we comfort someone else if we've never suffered? It's our own experience of suffering and comfort that equips us to strengthen, encourage, and bless those who are under tremendous pressure. The comfort of God is like a heavy rain that swells the river, which then overflows its banks and waters the shore. We experience a downpour of comfort from God that pushes us beyond ourselves and our own concerns into the parched and thirsty lives of those around us. But, but I, I want you to understand what this is saying. I think this is key, not only to just understanding this sermon and this letter, but our lives. Because we have been united with Jesus through his death and resurrection, we no longer view our lives as belonging to us. Like we belong to Jesus and we belong to his people. The cross does not allow us to see our suffering privately. Like we can't keep it a secret. Our suffering, your suffering if you're a Christian, is intended for the benefit and flourishing of others. Right? Like Jesus. Jesus suffered and died so we can live. When you suffer, it should bring life to others. Your suffering, Christian, is not just about you. I think sometimes we do this. Sometimes we, we say, like, well, once I'm done with this, then I'll help. I just need to get through with this, then, 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 I'll, then I'll serve. I, need to, I just need to focus on this, then once it's over, then I'll reach out. Right? Your suffering, Christian, it's not just about you. It's about others, and your suffering needs to be shared with the church. Twice in verse 7, he uses the word share. We share in suffering, and then we share in comfort. Private suffering is like a clogged drain, right? It stinks. It gets nasty and rancid the more it sits. But when suffering is shared, it's, it's like that drain unclogs and comfort can flow in after it. Did you see what Paul says here? He's like, I am confident that my suffering was part of your salvation. Now, Paul's not saying that his suffering in any way atoned for their sin. He's saying, God used my suffering so that you would hear and receive the gospel. You would receive God's salvation, the message of it through me. And Paul says, that's why I can look at you and I can look at your future with hope because I know that in my suffering you heard and you saw Christ and you received it and so now your hope is with Christ. Verse 7. So let me ask you, can God bring good out of bad that's happened to you? That's the question, right? Can God bring good out of bad that's happened to you? And the answer is, of course. He does it all the time. I, I would encourage you, if you're struggling with that, ask another Christian, have you ever seen God bring something good out of bad that's happened to you? And I, I, I guarantee you they will tell you how they've seen life come from death healing from suffering, good from evil, and read your Bible, right? And you're going to find story after story, account after account of this happening in the lives of God's people. Listen, brothers and sisters, if we want to be useful tools for ministry, then we need the sharpening power of difficulty and affliction. You wouldn't want 
the surgeon to use a dull scalpel for your surgery. Right? The sharper the blade, the quicker the healing. The impact that you will have on the lives of others is often tied to the amount of sharpening you've experienced through suffering. See, so when pressure comes in your life, you need to understand that God is preparing you to serve and minister to and bless other people. And it's not a, a ministry that needs to be impressive. Uh, this is what some of what this church was struggling with, and I think we can understand this and identify with it. We often think something impressive has to happen for us to really benefit someone else. But, but I... As the guy who stands up here and preaches most of the time, let me tell you, when people are suffering, they don't remember my sermons. I hope, and I believe this is how it works, that the teaching has prepared them for suffering, but no one afterwards is like, man, when I was suffering that sermon, that's what did it. Here's what they do. When I was suffering and that person dropped by, when I was suffering and I opened the mailbox and there was this card in there, when, when they dropped off a meal, right, it's these unimpressive things that God uses. And so here's, here's my challenge to you. If you're struggling with frustration or you're struggling with maybe with despair because you're, you're feeling afflict, afflicted, then ask God to help you look outside of yourself. Stop thinking about your problems and offer to help someone with theirs. See, it's, your suffering does not disqualify you from serving others. It's your suffering that prepares you for it. So affliction serves us because it helps us experience God's comfort and it helps us share it with others. Third, through affliction, we trust God, not ourselves. So the Apostle Paul he turns here from discussing affliction in general to a specific recent instance of suffering in his life and ministry. He, he doesn't really provide us a lot of detail. There's a lot of debate about what exactly, when he's talking about. Is it recorded in Acts? Is it something separate? Here's what you can't miss, though. You can't miss, miss how intense it was. Like, we're going to learn this later in the, in the letter. This will keep coming up, but later Paul will basically detail all of the suffering he experienced. But, but this particular occasion, whatever he's referring to in verse 8 and 9, seems to have affected him emotionally. So as I read these verses, I want you to pay attention to the way he discusses his affliction and the effect it has on him. Look at verse 8. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a terrible death and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again. So whatever suffering was going on, Paul says, I despaired of life itself. He was like a ship taking on water, being pulled under the waves. All hoped seemed lost. Death seemed inevitable. The credits were about to roll on the story of his life. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever been in a situation where you really felt like all hope was lost? Has suffering ever driven you beyond what you can bear? You know, sometimes Christians wrongly paraphrase another one of Paul's letters to suggest that God never gives us more affliction than we can handle. But that's not the case. God 
never gives us more affliction than we can handle on our own. Right? This is, this is what he's talking about. Suffering carries us beyond our limits so that we'll learn that, oh, I, I can't do this on my own. I, I need to stop trusting myself. I, I, I got to trust God. Sometimes affliction is so severe, sometimes death seems so, so imminent that our souls, uh, they feel like a, a laptop that was left unplugged. You, you go, you pick it up, and you flip it up, and nothing comes on the screen, and you push the power button, nothing happens. So you start pushing the power button harder somehow. I'm like a computer guy. That's supposed to work. Start jamming the keys, close it, open it, close it, open it, nothing's happening. Like that's sometimes how we are. Like it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter what we say. It doesn't matter how hard we try. It doesn't matter how strong we are. Like nothing's coming out. I don't have enough strength. Nothing's, I, I can't deal with this. There's nothing left in me that can handle these circumstances. And in those moments, our only hope is to be like, I, I got to plug it in. Like there's power here. Affliction has depleted my reserves, but, but, but there's, I can plug it in. You see, and we know that there's always power for whatever we find ourselves in because, verse 9 tells us, God raised Jesus from the dead. Like, because of the resurrection of the dead, he's what he's saying, we know nothing, not even death itself, can hinder the purpose God has for us. Henry Martin served as a missionary to Persia, and he died at the age of 31. Just nine months before he died, he wrote these words in his journal. He said, to all appearance... The present year will be more perilous than any I have seen, but if I live to complete the Persian New Testament, my life after that will be of less importance. But whether life or death be mine, may Christ be magnified in me. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. If he has work for me to do, I cannot die. He's saying that the purposes of God for us cannot fail. And I think he would say this, and if I do die... Because I am in Christ, then death is not the end. Why? Because it wasn't the end for Jesus. That's how united with Jesus we are. We say, well, even death itself wouldn't be the end because it wasn't the end for Jesus. We may suffer and die, but we will be delivered and comforted. I love verse 10. It says, he has delivered us. He will deliver us, and he will deliver us again. Because we've been delivered from sin and death and hell by the work of Jesus, we will always be delivered. Nothing, even death itself, is final. And this, this is why affliction can serve us. Because even if it kills us, we will be delivered. But in the meantime, what it does is it weans us from self-reliance. Right? Suffering takes us to the very end of our limits. I can't bear anymore, and then it takes us one step further. And we there either collapse on God or we just collapse. Because holding ourselves up is no longer an option. But when we collapse, so he's saying when we collapse, we collapse on the God who raises the dead. You know, sometimes people say critically of faith that it's a crutch. You heard that? Faith is a crutch. And I would say they're wrong. Faith is not a crutch. It is way more than a crutch. 
right? Faith is CPR. It's an ambulance with paramedics. It's a team of surgeons, a breathing machine. It's life support all rolled into one. Because without faith in God, we have nothing. Without confidence in Jesus, we are dead. But we can put our hope in the God who raises the dead, who, the God who has delivered us, the God who will deliver us, and the God who will deliver us again. And because of this, suffering has a way of clarifying our purpose and our priorities. Suffering makes us honest about what we're building our lives on. And it reveals our inabilities and how limited our capacity is. Have you listened in seasons of affliction? What I mean is sometimes we put our head down and we just, we're just getting through it. We just got to get through it. Maybe we try this and we try that and we try that, but have you listened? Have you paid attention to what it's revealing? And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Like, we despaired of life itself. And in that, we learned, oh, this, this must be a way I'm trusting myself. This must be a way that I'm leaning on my own strength. This must be a way that I think I can do it. And so it taught us that we must rely on God. So has difficulty and pressure weaned you from self-reliance? You know, if you've ever lifted weights, particularly if you were ever a high school guy who lifted weights, then you probably maxed out, right? That's what high school guys love to do. As you go there, and it's not about the number of times you can lift something, it's about the maximum amount of weight you can lift at one time, right? And so you try to figure out what that is, right? The maximum amount. I've maxed out one pound more, I couldn't lift it, but I can max out. And you're always trying to raise the maximum. Right? Affliction is a way of maxing us out, right? Because it, it shows us our limits so that we run to the Father. Suffering keeps you from leaning on your own understanding so that you can trust the Lord with all your heart. Fourth, finally, through affliction, we see our prayers answered. Through affliction, we see our prayers answered. When are you most likely to pray for someone else? When they're suffering, right? So when they're, when they're overwhelmed, when they're burdened, when they're, being, they're feeling pressure, that's when we most likely pray for each other. That's not a bad thing. Not at all. Because that's what we see happen here with the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul. Right? They hear about his affliction, it leads to prayer, that prayer is answered, and all of it leads to them thanking God because of what he's done. Look at verse 11, while you join me in helping us by your prayers, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. Uh, sometimes we don't feel like we're doing much when we're praying for someone who's going through a hard time. Have you, have you ever done this where you know someone's struggling and you say, like, how can I help you? And they're like, well, just pray for me. And whether you say it out loud or you think it, you're like, well, but I want to do more. I want to do more. Because this is what we need to understand that, is that when we say all I can do is pray, we're really saying, well, all I can do is the one thing that's most helpful. All I can do is go to the king of the universe who loves you dearly and has all the power and I can ask him to help because he's my father. That's all I can do. Right? Prayer is never the least important way to help. 
Prayer is always helpful. Sometimes God calls us, maybe even often God calls us to pray and act, but he always calls us to pray. Just this week, Carrie and I were talking about the alarms in her phone. She, she puts a lot of alarms in her phone and she labels them. So just, these are just sort of like regular things throughout her day. So like the alarm will ring at 3.30 and say, brew a cup of afternoon coffee. 9 a.m., leave for the doctor. 11.15, marinate the chicken breasts. And the reason she does this, she was saying, is she, she'll be focused on something. She'll be doing some work. She'll be doing this. And if she doesn't put the alarm, right, she'll forget about this important thing that needs to get done. Affliction is this alarm that reminds us of the important things that need to get done. Right? It, affliction just rings and it rings and it rings until finally we answer by praying. And the beauty is we know our prayers are always heard. Our prayers are always heard. Because what we do is we pray for God to pour out his grace on a suffering brother or sister. Paul says there in verse 11 that there's a gift that came through prayer. That word gift is simply the word grace. He says, you prayed for me in my affliction, and grace came. And we can be confident that always happens. You, anytime you pray for someone suffering and you pray for God's grace, he sends it. So I want, you to, I want you to think about these verses for a moment. So much of what Paul writes about in these opening verses is contingent upon us being honest with each other. Do you realize Paul had to be honest about his suffering and about the way it was impacting his soul? And the context of this, which we'll, we'll see more of, is that there were all of these super apostles, or they claimed to be apostles, who were pretty impressive. They would never admit weakness. Paul opens a letter with an honest admission of his own weakness. Maybe some of your ongoing struggles are made worse because you won't tell anyone what's going on. There's no one here who knows how to pray for you, no one who knows how desperately you need prayer right now. See, sometimes we convince ourselves we find, I don't want to say anything, it might be inconvenient. That's wrong thinking. You know what maturity in a Christian looks like? Asking for prayer more quickly. Not trying to do it on your own. Mature Christians are honest with other Christians and ask for prayer because they know they cannot make it without help. None of us have the strength to do it on our own. We're like Frodo trying to carry our burden up Mount Doom. And we need some other Christians. We need another Samwise, a Sam the Brave, who will pick us up and carry us when we can't take another step. So just listen to me for a second. If you feel pressure right now, if you're feeling afflicted, whether it's from outside forces or whether it's because of your own failure, and you have not been honest with another Christian about the struggles Talk to someone today before you leave. Pull them aside. Let them carry you with their prayers. And listen, we've got to commit to praying for each other. At the start of the year, you were given a sheet with names for each week. Now, listen, I'll, I'll, our system was alphabetical. That's why each week. But we also trust the Lord that there are going to be certain people that are on 
their names are on a certain week, and that is going to hit at just the perfect time where they desperately need a church to be praying for them. And so pray for each other. There is nothing we can do for each other that makes a bigger difference. I know many of you are suffering right now. And I think of our dear friends, the Duncans, mourning the loss of their new baby. I know there are some of you sitting here dealing with chronic pain. Others of you are caring for an aging parent, and that is so hard. Some of you are anxious because of a, a child that's wayward or strange. Some of you younger people, you're, you're being bullied at school or maybe at work. There's just these incredible pressures. Maybe even this week you lost your job. We live in a world that is filled with difficulty, with pressure. And if, if your view of life is shaped by our culture, then something, one of these things is going to happen. You're either going to grow despondent or you're going to grow bitter. Because this is, what, this is what you'll hear around you. You don't deserve this. You deserve better. You're trying hard. I mean, look at your life. It should be easier. It should be smoother. Right? The, the storm should pass. You, you, should, you should be in the sunshine. But the cross teaches us to ignore those voices, and to view the difficulty in our life differently. The cross reminds us, like the old Arab proverb, that all sunshine makes a desert. We do not grow without rain. The storms of affliction bring mercy and comfort from God, and it's his mercy and comfort that makes us useful to each other. It's his mercy and comfort that weans us from relying on ourselves, and it pushes us. It leads us to pray. Now listen, this talk about affliction, let's not misunderstand. We're not saying affliction is what it's intended. We, we sit here this morning and we go, Lord, we sing about things like this. We long for the day when affliction and suffering is no more, and that is our hope. And here's the reality. Because of the resurrection, we go, well, one day we don't have to talk about suffering anymore. One day we don't have to talk about affliction. One day it ends. But until that day comes, we must see our suffering through the lens of the cross. We share in the sufferings of Jesus so that we can share in his comfort and comfort each other. Will you pray with me? Father, I want to pray right now for the person, the many people, I think, who are sitting here that are suffering in some way. There's pressure, and that pressure may be from outside forces, that someone did something unfairly or unjustly and it's brought pressure. That, that pressure may be, frankly, because of their own sin and their own foolishness and their own bad decisions. Lord, today help them to experience your comfort and mercy. You are the God of all comfort, the God of all mercy. Lord, help us to be a church that cares for each other. Help us to be a church that's honest with each other. Lord, we don't want to be a place where, where people think they have to be impressive to come in. That they have to have it all together to, to, to be part of this church. Lord, we want, we want to be a place where we're honest about our own sin and our own failure and our own weakness and our own despair that we can, like the Apostle Paul, say, like, right now I feel like there's no hope. And that others will pray for us and care for us and comfort and strengthen and encourage us. 
Lord, our hope ultimately, though, is not in ourselves or even our application of what we've heard today. Our hope is in Jesus Christ who rose from the grave. And our hope is in you. So I pray right now for particularly for my suffering brothers and sisters, that they will remember that you have delivered us, you will deliver us, and you will deliver us again. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.